You're listening to the Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is a British financial historian, finance journalist, and former investment strategist. In 2016, the Financial Analyst Journal called him one of the great financial writers of our era, and in 2022, Fortune called him one of the greatest financial historians alive. Holding degrees from Oxford and Cambridge, his latest book is titled The Price of Time, The Real Story of Interest. It's my pleasure to welcome to the show, Edward Chancellor. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Pleased to be with you. So firstly, as always, I'd like to start off by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background and how you got into financial history. Um, well, as you said, I'm British. I read history uh, as an undergraduate and a postgraduate. And after finishing at Oxford, I went into City of London into investment banking. Um, I didn't like investment banking very much, so I decided to quit. And that was the moment which I started uh, working on financial history in the 1990s. I, I worked and, and published in '99 a history of financial speculation called Devil Take the Hindmost. And from really that time onwards, I've always uh, used history or financial history as a prism through which to try to understand what was going on in the financial world today, and whether it's looking at speculative bubbles in the 1990s or credit booms in the early 2000s, or as the subject of this latest book is about um, the the impact of interest rates, or namely, in recent years, the extraordinary low interest rates. And that was what um, set me on a uh, voyage of discovery, you might call it, uh, into the history of interest that goes back, as you know, five millennia or so into the earliest records of man's existence. Okay, so your latest book is titled The Price of Time, The Real Story of Interest. Most commonly, people think of um, interest as, as the price of money. So I remember in Econ 101, I was taught the, the money market graph with the interest rate on the y-axis where the price would typically be in a supply and demand graph for, for any good or service. So you detract from this conventional understanding, um, however, defining interest as the price of time. So can you tell us a bit about the history of how interest has been defined and why you chose this definition in particular? Um, well, I mean, if you think about it, to say that that interest is the price of money is a, is, is actually a meaningless statement, or, or at least an, an inadequate or incomplete statement, because you haven't introduced a dimension of time. And therefore, if you have some money now and you give it back to me simultaneously, where is the interest? It doesn't exist. Interest is the a charge for the use of money over a period of time. So time is of the essence when thinking of interest without time without the dimension of time uh interest is meaningless and to call interest the price of money 
uh, it doesn't make sense. You can, the price of money can only be defined relative to other money. So in fact, actually, the price of money is really the, the value of money on the foreign exchanges or whatever. So it, 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 I, I mentioned that people use this term, the price of money, but it's it's a, it's a it's a sort of it's a it's a slack way of thinking of things and and when I write about I think what I'm trying to do with this book is to to show why interest is uh, the most important uh, phenomenon in a um, in a, in an in the in the economy in all types of economy and in all types of finance and that's because all our economic and all our financial activities take place across time. And given that activities take place across time, and think of it in terms of you know, savings or investments or borrowing or lending, or even just you know, deferring your consumption today for consumption tomorrow, or valuing an asset, everything, everything to do with finance involves time and all these different activities are interconnected through the fact that the time has a value the time value of money which is surely you were also taught when you were when you were doing econ 101 valuation and the time value of money is what keeps the entire financial system uh in, in harmony, if you will, it's it's a, it. You could see interest, and this is a comment that that Warren Buffett. I'm slightly par paraphrasing Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett says in relation to uh, valuation that that interest is to valuation what gravity is to matter. But in fact, you can actually take that um, analogy of of gravity and see the entire financial system and all economic activity held together through the gravitational force of interest. All right. Um, so next, I wanted to go through some of the time periods um, you explore in the book, starting with the earliest example of interest in the ancient world. Um, you write in the very first paragraph that the Mesopotamians charged interest on loans before they figured out how to put wheels on carts. Interest is older than coin money itself, and it's not hard to see why. Um, if I give you money today, that means I forego any alternative investments, which economists call opportunity cost, as well as take on default risk, which means that in order for any rational actor to make that loan, they have to be compensated for those things. So can you tell us a bit about the early origins of interest in Mesopotamia? Well, I mean, we, what we find uh, in, the, in the etymological, the origins of the word interest across the ancient languages and say st st starting with um mesopotamian where you the word for interest is is ma mass or mash and that means a, a calf or a lamb the offspring of a of an animal and uh, you see similar derivations of the word interest across the other ancient languages whether in egypt or, or greece and what that is suggesting is that the origin of, of, of interest lies in its fecundity and the productivity of, of a loan. Um, what you find in ancient Mesopotamia is that interest is serving many 
similar functions as it does today. For instance, Mesopotamia you know, uh, was, you know, the first, as far as we know, the first ancient civilization to have large populous cities, and it had a, a real estate market, and you could buy and sell houses and take loans against houses. Now, you can't have valuation without an implied valuation of real estate or any asset, any capital asset, without an implied interest, without a discount rate, without, a, as I go back, without the embedded time value of money. So you see uh, the ancient real estate market, you see loans being used um, for productive purposes for, by, by farmers uh, taking out barley loans. Uh, you see loans being used by merchants uh, on on commercial voyages, and there, as you mentioned, there is a an embedded risk premium in the risky uh, sea voyages that that Mesopotamian uh, merchants engaged in. And then you you there were loans available for um, you know, for, for domestic crafts and 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 light industry. So um, and and we have records of. Uh, the interest charge, the terms of the loans in these uh, cuneiform clay tablets that uh, still exist today. So we we know quite a lot about interest um, from this period. We know that the Mesopotamians uh, calculate, made rather complicated calculations of how much interest was to be charged over a period of time. We know that they were the first people to 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 come across the problems of compounding interest, which is you know one of the reasons that interest has got is, has had a charging interest has had a bad name because there have you know there have been times, particularly in pre-industrial societies, where interest compounds faster than people's capacity to pay it. So really, uh, if you look back at this period, you know, five millennia ago, uh, you see almost all, all, all the attributes of interest that have sort of existed with us since that time. Okay. Um, so next I wanted to ask about usury in the Middle Ages through the Reformation, um, which is another period that you, you go over. So the Catholic Church famously banned usury for hundreds of years during this period, viewing it as immoral to make loans that enrich the lender. Um, however, some reformists like Luther and Zwingli still strongly condemn usury. Um, others like John Calvin argued that interest taking wasn't extraordinary as long as the interest rate represented the real difference between the value of the present and future sums of money. So can you tell us a bit about how and why interest came to be viewed as so immoral by the Catholic Church and so many others for, for hundreds of years and what ultimately changed public attitudes? Um, well, the... The, the, the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages took its view on usury from the Greek philosopher Aristotle. And Aristotle had condemned usury, uh, claiming that money was, uh, was, was intended for exchange uh, and in itself was barren and could not grow. And in the Middle Ages, um, and, and because it couldn't grow, uh, therefore, charging interest or usury was necessarily um, exploitative. And that view was really taken up by the medieval church. Uh, and um, what I think Aristotle made a mistake 
And the mistake goes back to what we were discussing earlier, namely that Aristotle didn't consider the dimension of time. It's, it's, it's perfectly true that if I was to give you a sum of money and to demand it immediately back at a premium, that would be considered extortionate, although heaven knows why you'd actually want to borrow from me in those terms. Uh, but Aristotle didn't consider that actually interest is the is the is is the charge, as I say, for the use of capital over a period of time. Now, what's interesting is is a medieval English um, scholastic um, a, a bishop um, called Thomas of Cobham uh, actually made a comment. Um, he rectified Aristotle's error, and he said that the 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 usurer was a seller of time which is a pretty good definition of what a, what a lender is. He's selling time. Um, but then the, um, the Thomas of Cobham then said, well, uh, this is still wrong because time belongs to God. Well, as you get into the, into the Renaissance period, and the, if you will, the sort of secularization of, of, of life, of humanism, then the idea that time belongs to God, goes out the window, and time is seen as man's possession. And as we know, time, as Ben Franklin says, is precious. Time is money. And as um, European society uh, gradually shifted from a sort of feudal to capitalistic type arrangements, when these are continued, you know, this is a process going on for centuries, but starting, if one can speak generally, in, in, um, in Italy in the, in the early Middle Ages, uh, then the, 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 uh, the church was, on, on, was, was, lose, was losing the battle. And in the end, you had the Reformation, as you mentioned, and Calvin in, in Geneva, uh, accepting uh, that interest could, under certain circumstances, uh, be legitimate, and 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 really by at around this time, you know, the, the Catholic Church also throws in the towel. Okay, um, so next, I wanted to jump ahead to some of the more modern questions surrounding interest that you explore in the book. So, following the 2008 Great Financial Crisis, interest rates steadily fell to and remained at near zero levels. You argued that when money becomes too easy, this leads to instability and creates asset bubbles. Um, this is the opposite of, say, um, I mean, and also exacerbates inequality, um, which is the opposite of, say, Thomas Piketty's RG rule, which is that when the rate of return, R, is greater than the economic growth rate, G, then inequality increases. So can you tell us a bit about your hypothesis surrounding the impact of ultra-low interest rates in the years following the GSC in particular? Um, yes. Um, well, first of all, um, we we know uh, that the discount rate that you use uh, in valuation is um, is the key input. So that the, the the present value of of any asset, uh, the net present value, is the future cash flow discounted to the present. So it should be pretty clear and obvious that uh, if you lower the discount rate. Uh, and leaving the cash flow, the future cash flow unchanged, you will get an increase in valuation. You're, I, I take it you're familiar with the Gordon growth model, which has you know, growth uh, 
we, as the growth on the top line and uh, and and the and 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 the discount rate as the denominator. So if you change the if you lower the the denominator, the discount rate, you get an increase in in value. And and one of the, one of the things I I'm, I'm trying to do with this book is to uh, shift the understanding of asset price bubbles away from the uh, pure, you know, the, the behavioral finance narratives of irrational exuberance of uh, the sort of psychological explanations for, for bubbles, which I, I think there is a role for that. But I, I'm afraid that in recent years, that, that has tended to be sort of exaggerated or become a dominant explanation for bubbles to the exclusion of other of, of perhaps a broader understanding. Anyhow, I'm trying to rev- to uh, assert the notion uh, that the um, that the interest rates and times of easy money, as we call it, uh, are periods when bubbles tend to form. And and um, in, in in the historical part of the book, as you know, I I mention all the great bubbles, whether you know starting in the tulip mania in Holland in the 1630s and going through the bubbles in in England in 1720 and in France at the same time through to the 19 you know through the 19th century and into the 1920s and in Japan in the 1980s and even in the run up to the global financial crisis the all these bubbles whether they're real estate bubbles or stock market bubbles are associated with periods of abnormally low interest and now um, come, you go into the financial crisis, and at the time of the financial crisis, I was actually working uh, uh, for the investment firm GMO in Boston in the asset allocation group. And uh, what we found uh, was that um, the U.S. equity market sort of rebounded very quickly and and very uh, after the financial crisis in two thousand nine, and then moved. Uh, Really, for most of the for for, for most of the, the remainder of for most of the last decade into this, you know, up until the current year, at really extraordinary high levels of valuation, uh, based you know histor- historically. So you, you know you're probably aware of the Schiller PE, the cyclically adjusted price earnings ratio, the ten year average earnings relative to price. Now, on the Schiller PE basis, at, at the beginning of this year. A U.S. Uh, stock market was at the highest valuation uh, in history, except for the, the very peak of the dot-com bubble. And um, then, you know, and as I mentioned, um, this is a more general phenomenon, not just equities. And you see it in U.S. household wealth, which is the aggregate valuation of of, of U.S. household assets, and and that. Uh, was at an all-time peak uh, at the beginning of this year. I think roughly uh, 250 percentage points of GDP above its uh, long-term average. And you know, people, as you as you are aware, up until recently, you know, we're talking about the everything bubble, not just you know, bubbles in equities, in in, um, you know, in special purpose acquisition companies, in 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 meme stocks, in in cryptos, in non fungible tokens, uh, you name it, uh, baseball cards, uh, vintage cars, uh, modern art. The everything bubble can only really be understood, to my mind. Uh, by the extraordinary monetary conditions 
of recent years that and uh, in a, and as we went in and and the final hurrah the the last act was the um was the covid uh bubble market uh that uh, you know that that was accompanied by uh interest rates once again in the us uh, being taken down to zero central bank uh, the federal reserve uh printing i think around 4 trillion dollars uh, of dollars, dollars of of, of money of, by, of expanding its balance sheet by that amount, and um, and and Warren Buffett's uh, partner Charlie Munger described it as the most extraordinary period uh, in almost all of financial history, and I think that's uh, that's uh, I think Munger is correct. Okay, um, so next I wanted to ask about the Chinese housing crisis. So you talk about China in one of the last chapters in the book, um, but this bubble has recently come to a head with devastating consequences. So as a result of easy money, Chinese developers would almost always pre-sell houses before construction even began, meaning people would start paying interest on their mortgages before their house even existed. Now, policy changes have tightened credit, meaning developers aren't able to finish houses that they've already sold, and people are stuck making interest payments for them. Between developers defaulting and people refusing to pay out of protests, the banks are being squeezed from both sides. So can you tell us a bit about what went on here and how low interest rates are playing into the disaster that we're seeing in China at the moment? Um, yes, I mean, I, I wonder whether you're slightly using slightly exaggerating language to call it a, a, a disaster at this current moment. Um, from what I read, you know, we're at the relatively early stages of the bubble Um bursting and the chinese authorities um have up till now at least been very good at, at controlling uh problems um from you know from from at least appearing you know flaring up in a sort of lehman brothers or bear stearns type collapse um but the problem of interest uh, in china uh, really goes back to the fact that you, you, you go back, you know, twenty-five years, and China was uh, loosely pegging its currency to the U.S. dollar, um, and that that suited the Chinese because they wanted to grow the their economy through exports. You know, particularly after uh, China joined the World Trade Organization in two thousand and one. And but the the downside of that is that if you peg your currency to the dollar, you have to you end up importing U.S. monetary policy, and so you know from two thousand and one onwards, uh, you know from two thousand one uh, just after two thousand one two thousand two, Fed the Fed after the dot com bust took the Fed funds rate down to one percent. And it was after this, you know, shortly after this, that a you know, pretty decent bubble started to appear in, in, in Chinese equities, running sort of roughly 2005 to 2007, and sort of imploding, um, you know, at the same time as the subprime crisis was, uh, was enveloping the developed world. And then after the, um, after the global financial crisis, uh, China revived its economy uh, by, uh, like everywhere else, lowering interest rates, but also uh, massively expanding lending and uh, deliberately encouraging a, uh, 
a real estate bubble so that the i mean they wouldn't call it a, a bubble but a, a real estate boom and if you look at this real estate boom in 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 china um in terms of valuation it's difficult to get um accurate data uh on chinese real estate because you know, the authorities don't particularly want people to have that data but uh i saw one estimate that looked about right that suggested that that chinese uh real estate in aggregate was worth about around 350% of gdp uh which is more than twice the aggregate value of us property uh at the peak of the real estate bubble in 2006 and uh, we know that uh rental yields in major cities uh around china in the so called um tier 1 cities like shanghai beijing so forth had had gone down to 2% uh since the um you know say by by 2015 or 2014 and we we also know that china was investing was building a lot of of, of apartment blocks i i you know if you go to if you go to china i've been to china for 10 years now but i used to visit it every year and probably 9 years actually but i i you you just see miles upon miles of apartment blocks and many of those apartment blocks were were empty they were sort of used as for storing wealth rather than for living in and and people tended to see china's real estate as as as, as something that was underpinned by the government so there was this what we call moral hazard element that you didn't need to worry about overpaying because beijing wouldn't let prices wouldn't let real estate market collapse and then a, a few years ago president xi jinping just sort of changed his view on the uh on, on chinese real estate he he said that houses were for living in not for speculation the market didn't pay any attention to him and then uh in 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 2020 twenty uh, he clamped down on on over over leverage developers property developers and that brought about the uh, the downfall of the largest um of the largest developer ever grand and now we are you know as this is slowly seeing the market decline but it's not declining you know and and bear in mind real estate markets can take a while to fall before you actually see how severe their problems are the us house prices uh turned down i think sort of late 2005 early 2006 and it still took us you know two and a half years before the lehman brothers event um so the these things can happen for a long time you know, uh, japanese real estate prices you know, started falling in early 1990 really continued falling for um the next 20 odd years um and 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 with with two decent banking crises uh, along the way so uh, as yet as i say we're in the very early stages uh, of of the bursting of china's uh, real estate bubble i think probably from a foreign perspective um the you know perhaps one of the things that be most interesting to follow would be you know how, how does this affect demand for um for raw materials because china's um raw material demand over the last you know, couple of decades has been absolutely staggering and in, in many in many whether it's you know steel or cement 
a number of other um, commodities, China has accounted for half of, of global demand and and a, a great deal of, of, of you know more than more than a hundred percent of incremental demand of demand growth. Uh, Chinese companies, I think, are, are responsible for roughly half of aggregate investment since the global financial crisis. They're roughly half of Chinese of the global debt has been accumulated in China uh, since the global financial crisis. So we, I think, people have had this assumption that China was a, you know, has been this sort of economic miracle powerhouse, and we obsess about our own problems and fair enough because you know we have a lot of problems and and we sort of have a tendency to make those problems worse but uh there are you know very deep problems in china um over indebtedness misallocation of capital and um and this union you know, as i say the legacy of this great real estate bubble and and um so you know, if you think of it, the, the, after the global financial crisis, China was the driver of of um, global growth, and, and I don't think that's going to happen. I, my view is that the Chinese economic miracle is over. Okay. Um, finally, to to finish off, I wanted to ask if there was anything that you learned or any trends that you observed in researching or writing this book that were especially surprising or that you didn't expect. Um. So, I think. You know, when I started this book, I, I I started this book because I I felt there were lots of strange um, things going on in the financial world and in the economies. Um, and as I got deeper into this, and I thought that these were all related, some or other, to the fact that we had these abnormally low interest rates. Uh, and what I've what I feel I've begin, begun to understand in the process of the work is how misunderstood the concept of interest is, and yet how it affects everything we do. And it seems to me, as I say towards the end of the book, that unless we sort of develop a better understanding of interest, and in particular, you know, find a, if you will, a better way of, of of setting interest rates that doesn't really just simply depend on the current level of, of inflation, but takes into account uh, other factors. Unless unless we actually sort of move closer towards a, a an ideal rate of interest, you know, a decent a decent rate of interest, then then capitalism, I don't think, can can function properly, and and if capitalism can't function, the system would have you you know would would have to be replaced by a state directed system, a a market based financial uh, economic system requires interest. I suppose that's the sort of key insight, and uh, you know one of the reasons I suppose I think people should read this book is is that you know they don't necessarily have to agree with everything I, I write. Uh, but it might help them to understand finance and economics a bit better. All right. Well, those are all the questions that I have for you today. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, Edward. Good. My pleasure. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.